Cowboy went riding out one dark and windy day Up on a ridge he rested as he went along his way When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw Plowing through the ragged skies And up a cloudy draw Their brands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel Their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel A bolt of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky For he saw the riders coming hard And he heard their mournful cry Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 83, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by eavesdropping on Police Radio. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this week we have a book uh, suggested by Wayne Booth at W Booth on Twitter. This is Ghost Rider, Volume 3, Number 7, from November 1990. Written by Howard Mackey, pencils and inks by Mark Texiera, colored by Gregory Wright, lettered by Janice Chang, with a cover price of $1.50 USD, $2 Canadian, and 85p UK. 85p. 85p. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll uh, dive into our writer, Howard Mackey, he was born January 22nd, 1958, in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. Raised mostly by his mother, his father having passed away when he was seven. Mackey started his career in comics in 1984 as an assistant editor for Mark Gruenwald. Early on in Mackey's career, a running gag in Gruenwald's columns was that Mackey was a mysterious figure whose face no one at Marvel had ever seen. Howard says, I was working for an exporting company and having less fun than I thought I should be having. A good friend, tired of hearing me whining about how much my current job sucked, was aware there was an editorial position opening up at Marvel. The job was to be Mark Gruenwald's assistant editor. The salary was pathetic. The friend was Mike Carlin. I think he went off to do something involving a guy with a red cape. I worked as Mark Gruenwald's assistant editing the core Avengers titles for a couple of years and then received a promotion to managing editor. Nothing happened in that position, but I did start trying my hand at writing. I was strong, it was strongly suggested at the time that assistants do something on the other side of the desk so you could learn what it felt like to be a freelancer. Mackey was promoted in early 1987 to managing editor of Special Projects. He then oversaw Marvel's New Universe line. Uh, we discussed the New Universe and its launch title, uh, Star Brand Number 1, way back in Episode 71, back in the archives. Uh, that one is more a Jim Shooter bio yeah. than anything else, though. But we do talk uh, about all the, the New Universe stuff, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, now, his writing debut was on Iron Man Number 211. Cover dated October 1986 with pencils by Alex Saviak. Uh, he thought this would be his last writing assignment as well. Uh, now, we're most interested in what is likely his second credit. It was uh, Chuck Norris's Karate Commandos, with a K, number four. <laughs> this is July 1987 cover date. Yeah, I think that might be a future episode of the uh, Cosmic Treadmill. Uh, it up. sounds like it. It <laughs> sounds like it. 
Uh, Mackey first gained attention as a writer in 1990 when he and artist Javier Saltares <laughs> launched a new Ghost Rider series for Marvel. Number one was cover dated May 1990. They revamped the character and introduced a new host for the Spirit of Vengeance, Danny Ketch. Mackey wrote Ghost Rider until issue number 69, that was January 1996 cover date, drawn by Salvador La Roca, but before he got there, he wrote the issue we'll read today. Yes, on the other side of the table, we got Mark Texera. That's right. Born 1980, his first major league start was for the Texas Rangers in 2003. No, 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 no. This is Mark Texera, not Mark Texiera. Right. Even though we'll probably use them interchangeably. Sure. (laughs) You mean the New York Yankees' first baseman, right? The guy who scored... uh... No, no, no. I know this is the uh, comic book artist. Oh, this is a uh, you know what? what we're, we're the cosmic treadmill. What do you think this show's about anyway? Oh right, I thought this was uh, <laughs> time for me to use baseball star. Yes. Now this Mark was born in the Bronx. He was raised in Manhattan, in New York City. Uh, with the help of an inspiring junior high school teacher, Mrs. Honest, he was guided to studying at the Art and Design High School in Manhattan. Mark remembers being a Bronx kid in the late 70s. During junior high school, my friends at the lunch table discussed comic books instead of girls. Yep, we were nerds. We had fun discussing creative teams on Marvel, DC, Atlas, horror magazines, etc. Example, who was the artist on this issue? Credits blocked from view. Uh, Kirby. That's kind of what it was like in eighth grade at the age of 14. Uh, Artists Jimmy Palmiotti, Dennis Cohen, and Mark Beecham attended the High School of Art and Design at the very same time as Mark. Yeah, I don't know if they were in the same class, but they were in the same school. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mark continues, says, I learned to oil paint under great artists like Mr. Max Ginsberg and Erwin Greenberg. I soon started showing work to Vince Coletta and Joe Orlando at DC Comics as well, which started a four-year series of rejections. Yet all the time, I was getting better. I showed countless samples into the age of 18 when I met Rich Buckler. He tutored me while I worked on backgrounds for stories like Shazam vs. Superman and learned all the most important drawing basics. It was a lot of work. A few years after high school, Mark was granted the Presidential Scholarship at the School of Visual Arts upon the recommendations of his uh, teachers, where he attended for two years before dropping out to pursue a freelance commercial art career. He explains, I left school to pencil the 30 to 40 page movie adaptation of Swamp Thing. (laughs) During this period, Texera studied under a portrait painter, David Leffel, at the Art Students League. His oil painting soon won mentions at the Salmagundi Club and the Society of Illustrators. Very good. Yes. (laughs) He began working in comics for Neil Adams' Continuity Comics. Got a partial list of his comics works. We've got You Will Believe in Ghosts, number number 108 and 111 and 112 in 1982 for DC. House of Mystery, number 308, also 1982 for DC. Swamp Thing Annual 1, also 82 for DC. Power Lords 1 through 3, there's 83 through 84 for DC Comics. He did the Marvel Super Special, which was Buckaroo Banzai, testing that out, number 33, 1984 for Marvel. And then he did the miniseries Buckaroo Banzai, one to two, very mini, <laughs> 1984. Yes. Uh, he did Sectoris, one to two, 1985, also for Marvel. Jonah Hex, 89, uh, for 1985 for DC Comics. And then Hex, one through nine, and then 11 through 14, 85 to 86, of course, for DC. 
Yes, and that was very strange when he left and Keith Giffen came on. It was a very jarring shift in style. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, he also did Cyforce 1 through 5, number 8, and the first annual. That was 1986 through 87 for Marvel. Megalith 1 through 3, 89 through 90 for Continuity Comics. Uh, Thor, the uh, Tales of Adgar, Asgard story uh, in issue 416. That was 1990 for Marvel. He also did Marvel Comics Presents, the uh, Wolverine and Ghost Rider uh, Serial uh, through issues 65 through I'm sorry 65 through 71 that was 1990 through 1991 for Marvel as well. And I liked him so much on that he did Ghost Rider Volume Three Number Five Number Seven which we'll read today 13 through 19 20 through two through 24 uh, the 1990 to 92 for Marvel Punisher War Journal 25 through 30 and Number Fifty. That was 1990 to 93. Union number one, 1993 for Image Comics. And then Punisher 36 through 37 and number 42, the first annual. The third annual, summer special number one, 1990 to 91. Uh, Clive Bach is Hellraiser, number eight, 1991 for Marvel Comics. Terror Inc., number six, along with Jorge Zafino. That was 1992 for Marvel. Guardians of the Galaxy, not that one. Uh, number 23 yeah. for 1992 for Marvel. And uh, the Sabretooth miniseries, the four-issue miniseries in 1993 for Marvel. He did Punisher Warzone number 33, 95. Akira 37, he did Painted Art in 1995 for Marvel. Moon Knight miniseries in the 1 through 4, 1999. And Spider-Man Legacy of Evil again with Painted Art, 1996 for Marvel. Vampirella Panther, Faster Pussycat. He did uh, Painted Art in 1997 for Harris Publications. Uh, he, uh, with Christopher Priest, launched that uh, Marvel Knights Black Panther, Volume 3. He did issues 1. This is 1998 through 1999 for Marvel. Hulk number five and the Hulk annual 2000 he, uh, with, with other artists. That was 1999 through 2000 for Marvel. He did the Sentry X-Men one-shot in 2001 for Marvel. He did Cyclops, a miniseries that had four issues, 2001, 2002. Vampirella, a panther feature within issues 13 to 17. That was 2002 to 2003 for Harris Publications. Stormwatch, Team Achilles number seven. In 2003 for DC Comics, The Darkness Wanted Dead, 2003 for Image Comics, and Tomb Raider, Scarface's Treasure, 2003 for Image Comics. Then Mark Texera's Scythe in 2004 for Image, Conan and the Daughters of Medora in 2004 for Dark Horse, Punisher Red Xmas, 2005 for Marvel, did a five-issue Hercules miniseries in 2005 for Marvel, and uh, the Man-Thing feature in Tomb of Terror number one in 2010 for Marvel. And then Thor, Heaven and Earth miniseries number two, uh, 2011 for Marvel, Space Punisher, Space colon Punisher, one <laughs> through four, 2012 for Marvel Comics, and Jonah Hex, Yosemite Sam special, just last year for DC Comics, so... The man stays busy is, is what, we, what we see here. He's done a lot of work. And there's stuff that is not on the list. He's done a lot of uh, special projects for continuity and uh, probably a bunch of other stuff that just missed. He lives and now. And the trading cards and stuff. That's right, the trading yeah. cards. I forgot to put them on the list. He did those in the 90s. Uh, he lives with his family now in Westchester, New York. Now, with the creative team out of the way, let's talk about Ghost Rider. The old fiery skull-headed uh, demon fellow <laughs> debuted in Marvel Spotlight Number 5. This is August 1972 by Gary Friedrich, Roy Thomas, and Mike Plug. After a seven-issue tryout run in Marvel Spotlight, 
The character received a self-titled Ghost Rider series in 1973. Roy Thomas remembered in an interview in May 2001, he says, I had made up a character as a villain in Daredevil, a very lackluster character named Stuntmaster, a motorcyclist. Anyway, when Gary Friedrich started writing Daredevil, he said, Instead of Stuntmaster, I'd like to make the villain a really weird motorcycle-riding character called Ghost Rider. He didn't describe him. I said, yeah, Gary, there's only one thing wrong with it. And he kind of looked at me weird because we were old friends from Missouri. And I said, that's too good an idea to, be just, to just be a villain in Daredevil. He should start out right away in his own book. When Gary wasn't there the day uh, we were going to design it, Mike Plug, who was going to be the artist, and I designed the character. I had the idea for the skull head, something like Elvis's 1968 special jumpsuit and so forth, and Plug put the fire on the head, just because he thought it looked nice. Gary liked it, so they went off and did it. That's nice when your creative partner is the executive editor of Marvel at the time, I it's think. It's a little helpful. A little I helpful. think he needs his own book. Well, all right then. <laughs> uh, later that same year, in 2001, uh, Friedrich responded to Roy's contentions thusly. He said, well, there's some disagreement between Roy, Mike, and I over that. I threatened on more than one occasion that if Marvel gets in a position where they're going to make a movie or make a lot of money off it, I'm going to sue them, and I probably will. It was my idea. It was always my idea from the first time we talked about it. Turned out to be a guy with a flaming skull and rode a motorcycle. Plug seems to think the flaming skull was his idea, but to tell you the truth, it was my idea. And then in 2008, Mike Plug said, Now there's been all kinds of dialogue about who was the creator of Ghost Rider. Gary Friedrich was the writer on it, the flaming skull. That was the big area of dispute. Who thought of the flaming skull? To be honest with you, I can't remember. What else are you going to do with him? You couldn't put a helmet on him, so it had to be a flaming skull. As far as his costume went, it was part of the old Western Ghost Rider's costume with the Western panel front. The stripes down the arms and the legs were, the, were there merely so I could make the character's costume as black as I possibly could and still keep track of his body. It was the easiest way to design him. You know, whenever I'm designing a character, it is always a it's it's a helmet or flaming skull. That, those are your two gotta options. Pick one. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> now, uh, the Ghost Rider is a human who can transform into a skeletal superhuman, burning an ethereal flame and given supernatural powers. The motorcycle he rides rides can travel faster than any conventional vehicle and can perform such seemingly impossible feats as riding up a vertical surface, across water, and leaping across great distances that that a the normal motorcycles cannot. Um, now, the Ghost Rider is virtually indestructible and notoriously hard to injure by any conventional means, as bullets and knives usually pass through him without causing pain. Uh, knives have been seen to melt while in his body. Uh, despite being composed of bone and hellfire, the Ghost Rider possesses superhuman strength, enough to easily pick up a truck and hurl it across a road. Which helps for parking reasons. I would imagine. Uh, the first Ghost Rider was not actually a Marvel character. He first appeared in Tim Holt number 11 in 1949 by Ray Crank and Dick Ayers for Magazine Enterprises. The character appeared in horror-themed Western stories through the run of Tim Holt, Red Mask, and A1 Comics up until the institution of the Comics Code, and it was essentially a guy on a horse. Yes, yeah. and Tim Tim Holtz, that guy from Arrested Development, who used to like put his hands up and say his name, right? I, I think that's who you mean. Yeah, that's who it has to be. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Marvel Comics' Ghost Rider is well, he's been a few people. First debuted in 
Writer number one, February 1967, by Roy Thomas, Gary Friedrich, and Dick Ayers. He's originally a guy named Carter Slade, who would dress up in a phosphorescent costume and ride a white horse to deal with supernatural-themed crimes in the Old West. With the introduction of Marvel's supernatural motorcycle and ghost rider in the 70s, Marvel renamed its Western Ghost Rider. First, in 1974 through 75 reprint series, to the unfortunate Knight Rider, a term previously used to refer to members of the Ku Klux Klan. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good look. Uh, and then to Phantom Rider, who is still in operation even to this day. That's right. Uh, second Ghost Rider, more well known, was Johnny Blaze. Again, from Marvel Spotlight number five, August 72 cover date. He spent his early years in the Quentin Carnival, where his parents starred in a stunt show with Craig, Craig Crash Simpson. Johnny's mother left the family with his two siblings, and when his father died in a stunt, Johnny was adopted by Crash and Mona Simpson. He repressed the painful memories of his childhood, so the Simpsons helped Johnny by fabricating his past, because that's the carny way. Mm-hmm. Now believing that his real mother was stunt performer Clara Blaze, who had died, Johnny became an enthusiastic member of the Simpson clan. Crash became a real father figure in Johnny's eyes, and on learning of Crash's life-threatening cancer, Johnny turned to the occult. Just desperate to save Crash, Blaze sold his soul to Mephisto in order for Crash's cancer to be cured, but we know how that works out. Crash mm-hmm. Simpson's cancer was cured, and Johnny believed he would live. However, Crash soon died after trying to jump over 22 cars. Same thing uh, happened to Aunt May, right? Whoops. Oops. There you go. <laughs> uh, Blaze was unaware that Mephisto had bonded with, it, with him with the demon Zarathos as an act of revenge for not being able to obtain Johnny's soul for himself. Johnny was transformed into a ghost rider, a leather-clad skeleton with his head cloaked in a sheath of flame the night after Crash's death. While Johnny still had his soul, he was forced to punish the wicked and evil upon Mephisto's demands whenever needed for some reason. Uh, He was linked to Mephisto until his sister by adoption, Roxanne Simpson, professed her love to Johnny. And this sent Mephisto scampering because he hates that love boy. He just can't. Ooh, it, it, it hurts him. And uh, Ghost Rider became more of a hero, a kind of creepy, murderous hero, but a hero nonetheless. Yeah, even Mephisto thinks uh, even what um, incest on paper is <laughs> It's not good. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I want no parts of this, folks. <laughs> he noped out of that. Uh, now, the third Ghost Rider, and the one we're going to read about, is Danny Ketch. He debuted in Ghost Rider Volume 3, Number 1, back in May 1990, by Howard Mackey and Javier Saltaris. Daniel Ketch was born in Brooklyn, New York. One night, Daniel and his sister Barbara were attacked by gangsters. Hopefully they weren't dating at the time. Uh, His sister was grievously wounded. Daniel fled and hid in a nearby Salem Field Cemetery, where he found a motorcycle bearing a magical sigil. Upon touching the sigil, he was transformed into the Ghost Rider. He beat the gangsters, but was unable to save Barbara, who had slipped into a coma as a result from her injury. And that... Brings us right to... Ghost Rider, number 7, 1990. The cover depicts Ghost Rider. Again, I just have to reiterate the character. is a biker <laughs> with a flaming skull for a head. Kneeling while holding the limp form of a woman. You just don't think of this guy as being, you know, very uh, empathetic. I don't know, for some no. reason. <laughs> he can't emote. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll reveal her identity now. She's his sister, Barbara. Scarecrow is rising up a bind- behind Ghost Rider, uh, poised to attack with a pitchfork. The subtitle of sorts reads Trail of Blood, Trail of Tears. Despite this, the title page on the the title on the splash page is Obsession. Besides, the Trail of Tears was a series of forced relocations of Native Americans 
from their ancestral homelands to people to places designated designated as Indian land. So probably not the best thing to evoke, I think, in this case. I would say so, no. yeah. Uh, now, the splash page depicts Scarecrow, dressed only in his mask and tidy whities crouching on a bed while looking at the night sky through a barred window. Caption reads, Creedmoor's Psychiatric Center, Queens, New York, two months ago. Seems like Scarecrow's kind of bugging out. He thinks to himself, they're not afraid. They should be. Two orderlies and a doctor barge into the room, mad that he's gotten hold of another scarecrow mask. The doctor pulls the mask off while the orderlies restrain him, and the doctor says, Now, Ebenezer, how many times have I told you that this sort of behavior is hindering our progress? Your lawyers had you released from the other place so you could be treated here. But in order for us to help you, you have to give up this dangerous masquerade. Scarecrow continues to think to himself, Nice neck, Dr. Cheney. Wonder what you're made of inside. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, like, bones, right? Organs? Yeah, blood vessels. The usual yeah. stuff I would expect. I don't know. Uh, I would hope. I don't know if uh, yeah, the doc so. is a... Maybe he's an android. Yeah. This is a comic book, so... Uh, one of the orderlies makes a crack about Scarecrow being a little mentally bereft. The doctor and the orderlies leave Scarecrow's cell together. Doctor says, I won't have you talking like that in front of the patients, Donnie. They all deserve our respect and our help. The, and the way you can best help him is to find out where he keeps getting these masks. We find out in the very next panel. Some trained crows bring him a new mask, as well as a straight razor. Uh, and now, in the present, we uh, tune into a news broadcast given by a woman who looks very much like a young Connie Chung, uh, like much younger than she would have been in 1990. Like she might be in her 20s or something. Yeah. She says... Ebenezer Lawton, also known as the Scarecrow, is still at large after his daring and bloody escape from Creedmoor Psychiatric Center less than two months ago. Must be a slow news day if they're still running last season's headline. Really? (laughs) You may recall that Lawton, a known contortionist, slipped his cell and, before escaping, disemboweled the doctor and his two orderlies. Yeah, well, we were trying not to recall that, thanks. Yeah, it's kind of graphic, uh... Police are currently investigating the possibility that it is Lawton and not the Ghost Rider behind the child abductions, which are continuing in the Brooklyn, Queens area. Police sources say that the Scarecrow has been linked with the recent murder of a Brooklyn Heights resident found hanging from a lamppost last night. The M.O. appears to coincide with Lawton's last known criminal activity. Unconfirmed rumors say that his body was also disemboweled and stuffed with straw. Now, the caption says that this was in Captain America number 280, the April 1983 issue by J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck. But wouldn't his last known crime actually be the disemboweling of the folks at Creedmoor? Yeah, I mean, doesn't that rate, you know what I mean? She just said that, right? Was that just an (laughs) occupational hazard or something? I would think that would count, but uh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Ghost Rider is watching this newscast through the window of an electronics store. Before it's done, he tears away in his motorcycle, leaving a trail of flames behind him. Everywhere he passes, the Ghost Rider attracts interest. I wonder why that is. I don't know why. It's just a guy on a motorcycle. I don't know what's the right? big deal. Caption reads, The denizens of the dark parts of the city do not frighten easily. Long ago, they stopped believing in the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and the Boogeyman. The Tooth Fairy, however, is still taken deadly seriously. It's, it's a big deal in Brooklyn, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rumors on the streets say that the flaming-headed motorcycle rider can freeze your soul with a stare. The rumors are right. But the Ghost Rider was not reborn to frighten people. His is a mission of vengeance, a mission of pain. 
So if he's not trying to frighten people, maybe you should consider uh, trying some applying some makeup yeah. or maybe wearing that helmet. Even a mask, a face wrap, you know. Sure. Or, or how about maybe your mission shouldn't be about pain. Maybe that you know maybe lighten that up mm. a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Caption says the Ghost Rider feels no pain for he is not human, but Dan Ketch, he feels more pain than any person should bear. Yeah, he listens to Coldplay. Oh, that is painful. The pain brought on by the transformation into the demon creature. The pain of the often horrific punishment the Ghost Rider inflicts on his victims. Not to mention these skinny jeans he always has to wear. <laughs> and the pain of watching his sister lie in a coma at a nearby hospital. Dan Ketch's life is filled with pain. There is no escape. Later, Danny is back to his human form and at his apartment. Uh, his girlfriend, Stacy, is trying to convince him to go out and have some fun. Yeah, Danny says, I don't know, Stacy. I've got things. No, and Stacy goes, nothing could be more important than me, Dan. Well, uh, there is the matter of my sister at the hospital lying in a coma. But, but sure, sure, you could be the most important. Yeah. <laughs> Danny's mom says, goodbye, kids. Have fun. Don't worry, Mrs. Ketch. I'll make sure of it. Stacy invites Danny to hop in her car, but he says he'd rather take his bike. It's right there nearby in a garage in front of the house. No way. I'm not damaging my kidneys on that death trap. Why don't you get rid of it, Dan? It's dangerous riding a motorcycle in the city. And Danny gets a little, a little overly angry in this battle. <laughs> right? he, he yells, I'm not getting rid of the bike for you, my mother, or anyone else. Screw you, Dad. Uh, and he hops into the car and calms down, we hope. Yeah, we hope so. It could be a domestic incident coming up. Uh, over at the New York University Medical Center, the janitor descends to the basement. It's dark down there, and he has a flashlight. His name is Manny Tilton, or Titley Tilton. Uh, <laughs> and, and he's not thrilled about this. And Manny goes, 15 years on the job. And I'm a number one man in charge of burnt-out light bulbs. Hey, congratulations, Manny. <laughs> I wonder if that comes with a plaque. Nice. Someday I'm going to win the lottery and tell them what they can do with their light bulbs. Oh, it's not something you're proud of. Sorry, I, uh, I misread Dang. that. Whoops. Uh, then the flashlight goes dark. Huh? Great. The flash is on the fritz. Hey, don't use that technical janitorial jargon around here, okay? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. He's talking uh, down to us. Really? Uh, Manny is grabbed by something off-panel. It's a figure with sharp teeth and one crazy eye that reveals itself slowly. We'll just reveal it now. It's uh, Danny's mortal enemy, Blackout, who first appeared in Ghost Rider number 2, June 1990. Uh, he was disfigured in his first meeting with Ghost Rider when he got burned trying to bite through his motorcycle jacket. Wow. Uh, Danny and Stacy are having a dinner at a restaurant in Brooklyn Heights. They're eating at an outdoor table. Stacy goes, I know you've been under a lot of stress, but you're not going to help anyone unless you learn to relax. You know, the food here is better than I expected. It almost detracts from the fact that we're eating next to a garbage can. Mm -mm. <laughs> Stacy continues, your mom could really use your support, Dan. She needs you to go to the hospital with her. Well, I'm surprised we didn't discover this place before. We must have walked right past it a million times. Will you stop talking about the food? This is serious. You've got to stop blaming yourself for what happened that night in the cemetery. Talk to me, Dan. Why are you holding back from me? What are you hiding? Okay, truth is, the food isn't that great. No. Uh, Danny says, I'm not hiding anything, Stacey. It all just, it just all feels so weird. 
Yeah, outdoor eating in Brooklyn Heights? That seems kind of unlikely. I don't think I would do it, frankly. No, You're no. sitting adjacent to urine at all times. <laughs> <laughs> Danny reluctantly agrees to visit his comatose sister that night. A few blocks away, Scarecrow stands atop a rooftop, crows flocking around him. They've killed a coop of pigeons that were there. He's looking for Captain America, the last guy to deal with him, besides those orderlies he disemboweled, of course. Details, details. Yeah. <laughs> to get Cap's attention, he's got to murder a woman and her baby right on the street. Because he's often reading the Brooklyn police blotter on his days off. Really? <laughs> <laughs> now, one hour later, the area is cordoned off by police and a small crowd is gathered, including a heavyset man with a propeller beanie wearing a jacket with Spider-Man's face on the back and Geek written underneath it. That's got to be alluding to somebody real, right? Yeah, it's it's so blatant to something. Yeah, it's it's so distinct. It's this is an inside somebody. joke of some kind, but I don't know what it is. Uh, Stacy and Danny walk by, and they're horrified. There are chalk outlines for both the mother and the baby. I I mean, I didn't think babies got chalk outlines, do they? I I, I would have wanted to have that job. I think that's dude. a morbid job. That yeah. is a real morbid. <laughs> I hope, I hope <laughs> photograph, digital photographs do the heavy lifting there these days. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the truck does last longer, though. Right. Uh, Stacy goes, a baby, Dan, a baby. What kind of sick mind could do such a thing? And Danny can't even face this horrific scene. He says, come on, Stace, let's go. Then he thinks to himself, all the blood. Oh, so young and innocent. I should have the bike now. The ghost rider would avenge this. What am I thinking? I'm buying it to this whole spirit of vengeance thing. Stace was right. I can't talk about it with anyone, so I just have to let it go. Can't buy into this obsession with vengeance. Unless you want to headline your own comic book, buddy. Yeah, it's pretty much a prerequisite. <laughs> uh, a police radio crackles a bolt in nearby, which Danny overhears. All units, all units. We've trailed this Scarecrow character to a two-block area. We're sealing off the area now and preparing it for a building-to-building -building search. Over. Danny turns around to find that his motorcycle is right there. Yeah, it followed him just like a puppy or something. <laughs> he thinks to himself, <laughs> I must, it must have sensed the innocent blood. I feel the pull, the need to ride the bike, to become him again. A uh, guy with a midlife crisis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's when I'm going to buy my That's pretty much the only time, yeah. <laughs> now, Stacy turns around to address Danny, but he's gone. You see, he hopped on the bike. Yeah, he thinks, Barb would understand. So would Stacy if I told her everything. But, of course, we can't have that. No. The ghost rider is needed. I can't fight it. If the scarecrow is behind all the kidnappings that are going on, he has to be stopped. No matter what. Stacy chases after the bike as it zooms away, if the scene weren't pathetic enough as it was. <laughs> now, meanwhile, back at the New York University Hospital, Blackout skulks the hallways undetected because he's created a, a blackout, you right. see. that's his thing. Uh, that's his gig. He makes it to Barbara's room where she still lies comatose. Oh, if only Danny had gone to see her like he promised. I think this will come up later in the issue. But right now, on the streets of Brooklyn, the Ghost Rider has manifested and he faces a police blockade. Yeah, one of the officers goes, Oh no, we don't need this tonight. Another officer says, I want him stopped here. Not one man is to break ranks, understood? The Ghost Rider is bearing down on them, all aflaming. Yeah, Ghost Rider says, Out of my way! I mean you no harm! But this child killer must pay for the innocent blood that has been spilled. 
and the spirit of vengeance will not be stopped. Ghost Rider pops a wheelie over the cops and launches from the roof of one of their vehicles. Of course, leaving that trail of flames behind him. One of the officers goes, There ain't anything about that guy I understand. And the other one says, All units, the Ghost Rider's moving into the containment area. Well, stop him, because we finally pinned down the Scarecrow, and I don't want to lose him. And indeed, we cut over to a scene where Scarecrow is whining for Captain America on another rooftop. Uh, cop cars are filling the streets below. I wonder if he's going to be disappointed when Cap, uh, no. <laughs> Scarecrow goes, Where are you, Captain? Don't you want to bash me with your shield? Through all the shield bashing in the world cannot dislodge the fearful thing which is inside me. Come, my Captain. Uh, Ebenezer, I gotta, you know, there's such a thing as coming on too strong. I mean, really, this is getting a little pathetic now. It is, you know, if you want to... If you don't want to dislodge the fearful thing inside you, I mean, this is, this is some, some purple stuff here. Uh, now, Ghost Rider rides vertically up the wall of a building with a zaroom right toward the Scarecrow. Yeah, the officer says, correct that last transmission. We now have the Scarecrow and the Ghost Rider on top of the roof. Wonderful. And now Ghost Rider and Scarecrow face off. Ghost Rider says, your killing rampage will be stopped now. Not by you, Skullman. Kill my pets. Feast on his bones. Hey, but don't touch the jacket now. No. Hey. Uh, crows fly towards Ghost Rider, <laughs> but he just punches their lights out with like a swipe. Yep. Just just punches a bunch of birds. The, the end with them. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Ghost Rider wraps a chain around Scarecrow, then rides his bike right off the roof, Scarecrow trailing behind. A cop makes it there just in time to utter... Holy, I don't believe my freaking eyes. <laughs> Ghost Rider bounces from rooftop to rooftop, the cops following him below. They send some advance units to the river where they'll probably wind up. And what do you know they have? They're in what looks like Brooklyn Bridge Park right over the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Scarecrow is still chained up but defiant. Why did you do that? Now Captain America will never find me. What, do you think he only checks rooftops? On Thursdays. Yeah. <laughs> this chain is tight, but not tight enough. And he wriggles right out of it. I guess he made, he made, that made sense, huh? Yeah. Uh, now Ghost Rider comes up behind Scarecrow and grabs him in a bear hug. No! You must feel the pain of my petted stare! Or at least, you know, hang around for coffee. Feel the pain of your victims! Scarecrow just runs away. Not tonight, Phantom. Tonight, all I can feel is the fearful thing inside me. And he walks over to a storm drain and jumps right into it. Like, I just got to say, like, it, you know, I know elsewhere in the country, sometimes the storm drain is something you can crawl into. Not in New York. It just really, you got, you got to be a very thin or small man. I guess the Scarecrow is a... It takes uh, some effort. It really, he just leaps right in head first, too. It's like, I was like, whoa, all right. <laughs> The Scarecrow, as, as he's jumping in, goes, I'll look you up some other time if Captain America fails to stop me tonight. I mean, you just got to get over this Captain America hang-up, dude. He's, hey, he's he, obsessed. He's a, he's a member of the Avengers. He's busy. You know what I mean? He's not... He's got stuff to do. <laughs> uh, Ghost Rider rips the storm drain out of the curb, but looks like Scarecrow got away. Back at the NYU Medical Center, Blackout is menacing Danny's sister, Barbara. Right, who's still in a coma, so she's just napping through the whole thing when he says... I've followed him to the cemetery near your dreary little home and watched him undergo the transformation into the hideous motorcycle-riding creature. 
but he gets to revert back to his pretty face. I don't have that choice. I could never have my beautiful face back. Oh, if it's any consolation, it does look a little bit better than a flaming skull, right? I, I agree, and frankly, it doesn't look that bad. Just got a weird eye, really. Yeah. Uh, my face and my life have been mutilated by your demon brother, and I mean to see that he is paid in kind. His life will become a reeking wound surrounding him. Everything that he loves, everyone, will be taken from him, beginning with you, dearest Barbara. And it looks like Blackout's about to bite her neck. Did did he become like a vampire or something when Ghost Rider uh, disfigured him? Yeah, I mean, I guess biting is one of his main moves, but it seems like a little overboard for someone in a coma, right? Like, yeah, it... <laughs> just stabbing or, or smothering would do, but... Yeah, pretty much. Uh, now, the next morning, Danny gets home just in time to catch the ringing phone. Uh, it's right next to the Holy Bible for uh, those that like imagery. Yeah, sort of a little foreshadowing to what the phone call is going to be about. Yeah. Picks it up and says, hello. And it's Stacy, and she goes, Dan, <laughs> come quick. And later at the hospital. Danny is hugging his mother. Others stand around, sadly. So sorry. I should have been here. I should have... Danny's mom says, oh, Daniel. Stacy goes, Dan, there's nothing you could have done. Nothing anyone could have done against a maniac like that. She's right, Daniel. If you'd have been here, I might have lost you both. Then what would I have done? She probably would have finally turned one of their bedrooms into a sewing room, right? I know. These are, these are adult children, okay? Time to hit the road, kids. You know what mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> Now Danny uh, looks tortured. We could tell because he's got tears streaming down his face. I could have done something, but I'm going to. Now! Danny runs off. <laughs> Danny's mom says, Daniel, and there's something about this scene. <laughs> like... <laughs> She just doesn't look that upset. She doesn't look There's that no upset. urgency yeah, at all. She's like, Daniel, oh, he'll come oh, back later. That'll be all right. Oh, he's too far. He can't hear me. <laughs> now, uh, that evening in Brooklyn Heights, Scarecrow is back to the rooftop. He's got to switch it up, his MO here. It's just like, uh, right? you know, he's going to start calling you the rooftop guy. Uh, he's looking for a new victim, but then Ghost Rider shows up. You again. Don't you understand me? I want Captain America. Yeah, well, get in line. You're going to have to fight Ant-Man and She-Hulk next. You know, you know, It's you, a hierarchy. You don't know, go straight to the top, buddy. <laughs> uh, Ghost Rider says, You want to spill more blood? And this cannot be allowed. Ghost Rider cracks Scarecrow in the face with his chain, landing with like a whip with a karak. And Scarecrow counters with a swipe of his pitchfork. You can't stop me without killing me. Captain America would never kill me. It's just not his style. I mean, don't, like, talk up your ex-boyfriends on your second date. That's just bad. That's a big turnoff. It really uh, is. <laughs> Scarecrow continues. But I know the fearful thing is inside me. Inside us all. Inside him. Inside us all. I plan on tearing him open and showing it to him. Showing it to the world. Well, this date is ruined, I see. That's it. Yeah, might as well just call it a night. Yeah. Uh, Ghost Rider knocks the pitchfork from Scarecrow's hands. I will not kill you either, Scarecrow, but I will stop you and make you feel the pain. And Scarecrow dives at Ghost Rider's midsection and tackles him. Pain? What could you possibly show me, Ghost Rider? The fearful thing gnaws at my insides every day until it works its way out, until it devours others. And then Ghost Rider body slams Scarecrow and says, You must suffer the pain. 
justice by my hands. Ghost Rider picks Scarecrow up and holds him very close. The flame from his skull head lighting Scarecrow's face, which is a pretty nice artistic touch. A little bit of a nice touch, yeah. yeah. He says, bye bye, petted stare. Ah, you have no ears, so you can't hear. I can't suffer from yours or anyone else's pain. I can only be stopped by death. If not by the hands of Captain America or yours, then by my own. And then Scarecrow pushes himself away from Ghost Rider and lands back back first on his own upturned pitchfork. It goes right through his guts. Ghost Rider looks on. Yeah, he says, <laughs> Justice! Vengeance! Good enough. Yeah. Uh, Ghost Rider takes off from the rooftop with a roar. Minutes passed, and in silhouette, we see two figures remove Scarecrow's body from the pitchfork and take it away. We jump ahead two days later at the Salem Fields, and this is the uh, cemetery near Danny's house. And hey, it's his sister's funeral, which must have been convenient for uh, commuting. Commuting, yeah. Uh, He thinks to himself, it seems right that it should end here where it started, Barb. It seems like our lives have always revolved around this cemetery. It's over for you now, but it's just beginning for me. I let you down twice. I should have been at the hospital. Maybe I could have made a difference. I'll never know. But from now on, something new has been released inside the Ghost Rider. I can sense it. I feel as though I'm about to learn more about him and about myself. Payback has just begun. Whatever I do from now on, it'll be for you. Goodbye. I love you. The end. Which is sort of a abrupt and strange ending, but all right. You know, that far, good enough. (laughs) Uh, so this was, you know, uh, I, I enjoyed this issue more than I thought I would. We talked about sure. this. Ghost Rider is a property I've never had a sustained read of. It's always just tickled me that it's a guy with a skull, flaming, a skull, flaming head, skull yeah, uh, on a motorcycle. So uh, not super knowledgeable about you Again, like when Ghost Rider brushed up against other characters, when I mainly know him, but not in his own sure. title. Uh, but I was pretty impressed by this. This really was more of a horror title than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it, it. I don't know. I didn't. I don't have much uh, experience with it either, except you know his guest starring roles. And uh, I tried getting into it probably in the two thousands, but oddly enough, Ghost Rider is one of those books that does not show up in the bins very often. Weird. Um, yeah, it's it's. There's a few. There are a few titles out there that it's like really weird to find in in the bins. And Ghost Rider is definitely one of them. Um, I, I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed this. It was a uh, a little sillier than I would have uh, imagined, but uh, but I definitely had a really good time with it. Yeah, you know, definitely a lot of melodrama. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, tortured people in it. You know, angst. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, but but overall, it, it was still it was. A good, neat issue, you know what I mean? It uh, had a little bit of character development. And I got to say, I, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Mark Texera's work. Uh, but this, I felt like he really was stretching his abilities a little bit. You know, he really mm-hmm. did do some interesting. And it's, this, is, this is really one of the deficiencies of the podcast is we can't show you the art. Yeah. Uh, it's to explain, but there's a lot of, like, silhouette work and a lot of interesting shading work on faces, you know, to round them out. A lot of, a lot of like, close-ups of faces that have uh, just just interestingly done. It's not his typical stuff that I would I would think of, like, on, you know, uh, Spider-Man or whatever else. Sure. So uh, it was cool. You know, he's, he's a really good artist. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, this was, 
I think just his chance to do something a little bit different because Ghost Rider is sort of, you know, it's uh, probably gets a little more leeway than other books as far as going uh, off model or whatever like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of flow to the character where you can you can take a lot of liberty with, uh, with yeah. it and his world. So they, they look at it, they're like, can you draw a skull? Yeah, all right, you're in. You're, you're in. You got it. <laughs> That's, the hardest part is drawing the skull. So uh, it was a good time. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if this really sucks me into uh, read a bunch of more Ghost Rider, but any of the listeners can change that just by recommending all the Ghost Rider in the world. <laughs> yes. We will get to it ultimately. Uh, but a, a, more, a little thing about Mark Texiera, you know, we basically did his bio and we're done because there's not much to say. I, I really think this is a guy who is about his work. Uh, yeah, sure. We went through a lot of uh, interviews, a lot of things, and... I think essentially he just gets work, does it, and you know we—that's all there is to say about. Doesn't make waves. Has not um, annoyed anybody to the point where they (laughs) want to say something about it in public. So uh, he, you know, pretty much his his bibliography speaks for itself, but not so necessarily with the writer of the book. Indeed. Let's continue Howard Mackey here. Uh, Now, this volume of Ghost Rider almost didn't happen, according to Mackey. In a 2016 interview with Horror News Network, he would say, The comic took forever to be greenlit. When the concept reached the sale department, they tried to kill it. Some members of the sales department were certain that a horror concept would not sell comics. They were also worried about an untried writer and art team, for, and for them, the sales department, it had disaster written all over it. I redid the pitch a number of times, and each time it still faced opposition. The story went from a four-issue limited series to an original graphic novel to a prestige format miniseries and eventually back to an ongoing title. Wild. Yeah. Uh, now, he continued, Eventually, it became a real battle between editor Tom DeFalco and sales. Tom insisted it was going to be published, and when he pressed the issue, a member of the sales team wrote a letter to the publisher stating that it would be a financial disaster if published. Yikes. In that end, Tom won, and when the book became a success, the person who penned the letter to the publisher ripped it up in Tom's office. So at least he admitted his... uh... Ever, you know, whatever. And, his, uh, yeah. and what was where was the where was the sales department when they were actually like publishing bombs? <laughs> I don't know. You know, he was so hung up on, or he or she was so hung up on stopping Ghost Rider. Yeah. That they're letting like, like you know, Wonder Man came out. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's come true. On this, now. this is 1990, so we're looking at the, sure, at the a flood, the, the beginning of a flood, or like we're in a flood of crazy books. So. uh yeah, they were probably like, where's X-Men in this book? Is this, is Ghost Rider an X-Men? No, uh, yes. we don't want to publish it. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, in 1992, Mackey became the regular writer of Web of Spider-Man with number 85. That was cover dated February 1992, drawn by Alex Saviak. He would remain on various Spider-Man titles through the Clone Saga, and of this time, Howard said, some of the best times I had working for Marvel were spent locked in rooms with Danny Fingeroff, Tom DeFalco, Mark Dimiteus, who I guess he means Jamie Dimiteus. Yeah, uh, John Mark, that's right. Uh, Terry Cavanaugh, Tom Lyle, Todd DeZago, and the rest of the Spider crew. I love those guys. We had more fun than anybody should be allowed to have while still drawing a salary. They, also, they were also the toughest writing times. Coordinating storylines with three other writers, no matter how much you respect and love them, is a royal pain in the butt. You sit in a room, flush out the details of a storyline that is going to play out across all the titles, Everyone throws ideas in. You know you've got it all planned out, and then, inevitably, someone starts writing stuff that you thought you were going to write. 
It was a pain, and it was a blast. I still miss working with all those guys. And you can learn more about the Clone Saga in Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 24, concentrating on the spectacular Spider-Man number 226 in the archives. Yes, Howard authored two Ghost Rider Wolverine Punisher team-up one-shots. There was Hearts of Darkness in December 1991 with art by John Romita Jr. And its sequel, The Dark Design, in December 1994 with art by Ron Gawney. Uh, Mackey's work on the X-Men line included writing the spin-off title X-Factor from issues 115 to the final issue 149. This was the years 1995 through 1998, as well as its successor title, Mutant X, which ran from 98 to 2001. Uh, he wrote several miniseries featuring Gambit, Wolverine, and Rogue, and he's believed to have been the anonymous Writer X on Marvel's Brotherhood series that ran from July 2001 through March 2002. However, that was never confirmed. If you look at any of the uh, sites that talk about the Brotherhood, the yeah. writer line is left blank. Mm. because. Yeah, but in fairness, it's doubtful anyone would ever step up to writing, to admitting that they wrote that, uh, even all these years later. It was... Uh, Quite a strange time. Yeah, we might have to wait for them deathbed confessions on that one. Huh? <laughs> we I know might, what really yes. happened. Uh, in January 1999, Mackey became the writer of both The Amazing Spider-Man, initially drawn by John Byrne, and The Peter Parker Spider-Man, initially drawn by John Romita Jr., when those two titles were relaunched with, with new first issues. <laughs> Mackey left the Spider-Man franchise with The Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, number 29, May 2001, cover date, drawn by Lee Weeks. And then there was a disappearance of, of Howard Mackey. Yes, he vanished. And uh, Chris and I looked into it, tried to see. I don't know what happened. But then, in late 2009, Mackey teamed with Tom DeFalco to write the six-issue miniseries Spider-Man Clone Saga, November 2009 to April 2010 cover dates, whose story is based on Mackey's original notes for the 1990s crossover. And, most recently, Howard wrote Ravagers 1 through 7 and issue number 0, 2012 to 2013 for DC Comics New 52 initiative or whatever you want to call it. And you know, uh right around 2000 looking looking into Howard Mackey, you see he's becoming very disenchanted with yes, comment, this fan commentary. Tired. The yeah. internet uh he's a lot of his interviews it, it was a guy that was sounded pretty burnt out. So we're guessing possibly he just took time off, but don't know. Don't know what happened. If they don't, you know what I mean. It's if it's not on the public record, we can't sure. really do anything about it. <laughs> no, everything we can do is kind of postulate. But he was put into some really, really cruddy positions. Yeah. Uh, that Spider-Man reboot, or the the the, the you know the Burn Mackey reboot, was really uh, unfortunate and. Uh, one of those attempts at chasing a number one, uh, a number one issue that is, it was just very, very poorly uh, laid out. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, Mackey was the writer of both books, uh, even though he he's you know he has said on record that he was burnt out on Spider Man at that point, and yeah. uh, just uh, poor guy was just stuck on <laughs> stuck on properties he had no real affection for at the time. And uh, I mean, even that Mutant X series, that thing started out. That thing, that thing was snake bit from the start, just so slipshot and really didn't have much focus. And then it just got to the point where it was just 
beyond wacky. I think, like, Captain America was bit by Dracula and became a vampire. Whoa. And then Havoc, because it was a Havoc series. Cyclops' brother Havoc oh, was yeah. sent to this other universe. And he was bit by Dracula. Everybody was bit by Dracula. And then there was, like, a war between the United States and Canada. And then the world exploded. And uh, it was just a mess. It's a, it, it sounds just, like that might have been the capstone, too. Like, like that that <laughs> yes. came out. I think he saw, like, comments on that. And he said, I'm walking away for a little I'm while. I'm done. So, yes. uh, if you if you can do it, if you can afford to do it, folks, then uh, don't burn yourself out on these yes, books. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Exactly. Yeah. Most times. Uh, now, for our hook this episode, you know, we just we just met a fella named Scarecrow. Which, when you talk to a comic book fan and you say Scarecrow, they're probably not thinking of this guy. No. Uh, they're probably thinking about someone who. Uh, who haunts and bothers Batman. So we're going to talk about characters with same names, but different different people behind the masks yeah. or behind the, uh, behind the visage. And uh, we're going to keep this to Marvel and DC because it could go crazy it, if we didn't. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are other imprints that have been much more uh, steel-happy, steel I guess we could <laughs> yes. call it, or, you know, not afraid of the and, derivatives. And we're gonna we're gonna leave out things like the pantheon of gods and stuff like that because I mean, how many Thors are there in comics? How many Herculeses are there? It's, yeah. That that just gets silly. And technically, they're both ripping off those original sources anyway, so that's. Okay. <laughs> you mean you mean the Jack the Jack Kirby originals, right? Exactly. The guy who started North <laughs> Norse mythology was Jack. I remember Kirby. that. I remember reading that in our bio. Uh, now we'll start off by discussing Scarecrow. Like we said. Most people would think of DC's comic, DC Comics character, Dr. Jonathan Crane. Uh, he debuted in World's Finest Comics number three. This is the fall 1941 issue written by Bill Finger. He's a psychology professor specializing in phobias who likes to spread fear using psychotropic chemicals. Uh, early origin recaps of the character always pointed out that, as a child, Crane liked to scab flocks of birds. I, I, was, I always liked this. Like I, I always read that in like the, I'd say the first four appearances of him, they mentioned that, as if like, oh, like a scarecrow. I get it. <laughs> Ridiculous. Now, the fellow we read about today, Ebenezer Lawton, he debuted in Tales of Suspense number 51, March 1964, created by Stan Lee and Don Heck. And he's an escape artist and a contortionist who commits crimes with the help of trained crows, as we've learned. And uh, I guess his contortionist skills helped them get into the sewer. I guess that's why he was able to fall into the drain. Yeah, the sewers. I mean, it was so weird. Head first, I say again, folks. That's not an easy feat. You can, well, I, you can suck in your skull, right? That, that, that's the part. That's the hard part, you know? I mean, like his, he's like a rat. If he can get his head through the rest of his body. He's good, yeah. Uh, now, here's a, here's a nice sticky one. We got Captain Marvel. Uh, I'd say the more popular one would be the uh, known as the Big Red Cheese to his archenemy, Savannah. He thundered into the world in Wiz Comics number 2, February 1940, cover date by Bill Parker and C.C. Beck, published by Fawcett Comics. A homeless orphan child and news reporter Billy Batson is told the magic word Shazam, which summons the Superman-esque Captain Marvel in Batson's place to pummel villains. Fawcett ceased publishing Captain Marvel-related comics in 1953, partly because of a copyright infringement suit from DC Comics. In fact, I would say largely, but that's you know more conjecture. Perhaps only. Yes. Maybe only, possibly. <laughs> you know, a lot of things were happening in comics, but that was, that was definitely not good for Fawcett. Uh, in 1972, DC licensed the Marvel family characters from Fawcett and returned them to publication. Then by 1991, DC had acquired all rights to the characters and still... Although not currently, although, you know, you can still find Captain Marvel in D.C. today. He loiters in the background of JLA. Uh, Here and there, yeah. 
Uh, now, the first of Marvel Comics, Captain Marvels, which was Marvel, debuted in Marvel Superheroes number 12, December 1967, covered eight by Stan Lee and Gene Colan. This is a Cree military captain who was sent to Earth to infiltrate society. Then he flipped sides. He tried McDonald's. He heard some rock and roll. Thought it was all right. Uh, this character would be revamped so that Captain Marvel switched places with Rick Jones with the use of nega bands. That is nega bands. An obvious yes. nod to the Shazam switcheroo of the original Captain Marvel. And uh, when when they put this book out, Stan wisely. Trademarked the character's name. Very good, yes. <laughs> now, the second Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, she debuted in The Amazing Spider-Man Annual, number 16 in 1982, by Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. She was a police lieutenant from New Orleans who possessed the power to transform herself into any form of energy. She'd eventually take the name Photon after ceding the Captain Marvel name to the original Captain Marvel's son. Who was Genusvel, who... Hmm. Zapped into existence in Silver Surfer Annual Number 6, 1993, by Ron Mars and Joe Phillips. This genetically engineered son of Marvell and his lover El- Elysius, uh, created from the late Marvell's cell samples and artificially aged to physical but not emotional maturity. He's also tied to Rick Jones via the Nega Bands, about which neither is happy at first. He later takes the name Photon, forcing Monica Rambeau <laughs> to take the name Pulsar. Like, well, just leave her name alone. What is wrong? Right? <laughs> Why couldn't you be Pulsar? <laughs> you be Pulsar. Let her be Photon. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's like Spectrum now, isn't she? I think I, she's changed she again. can't keep a name. Like, just call me Monica. <laughs> How about that? Can I, can I have there Monica? <laughs> and uh, his original name was actually Legacy. Oh, when, he, really? uh, when he came into that Silver Surfer annual, that was during Marvel's take on like the Bloodlines thing uh, that DC was doing that very same year, where they were every annual was introducing a new character. All, all I can uh, see when you say these things are Jim Jim Shooter face bombing, like oh, are you renaming all these John. characters all the time. Yes. And, uh, now the fourth Captain Marvel is Phyla Vell. This is Genus Vell's youngest sister, and she first appeared in Captain Marvel Volume Five, Number Sixteen. This is January two thousand. Four by Peter David and Paul Azaceta. Azaceta. I would say that. That's that'd be my sure. guess. Yeah. Now, Phyla is created when Genus, an only child, recreates the universe, and in doing so, creates various anomalies, which result in his mother being restored to life and his sister coming into existence. She'd later change her name to Martyr because you know she sacrifices herself yeah. to save the guardians of the galaxy so uh definitely good choice in naming good choice you showed that a uh, wish fulfillment was there mm-hmm. a uh, scroll sleeper agent named knur is the fifth captain marvel debuting in civil war the return march 2007 covered eight by paul jenkins and tom rainey he is bound with Captain Marvell's DNA and given replicas of Negabands, but something goes wrong and Captain Marvell's personality becomes the dominant one. Now, as part of the Dark Reign storyline, Novar joined the new team of Dark Avengers using the alias Captain Marvel. He appeared first in Marvel Boy Number 1, August 2000, created by Grant Morrison and J.G. Jones. When he finds out that the team is made of villains, Novar quits, and then he becomes the protector of Earth. Changing his name to the Protector in the uh, progress, in the process, uh, and then he uh, he helped the Teen Titans get off drugs. I see. I seem to recall that too. That's right. He uh, yes. he, he uh, hung out with a weird uh, indigo-colored suit. And yes. <laughs> and finally, Carol Danvers, the longtime superhero known as Ms. Marvel, assumed the mantle of Captain Marvel in an ongoing series written by Kelly Sue DeConnick and with art initially by Dexter Soy. Debut issue was Captain Marvel Volume Seven, Number One. 
in September 2012. Takanik said at WonderCon 2012 that her pitch for the series could be described as Carol Danvers as Chuck Yeager, who was the first uh, Yeager, who was the first pilot confirmed to have exceeded the speed of sound in level flight. Okay, uh, sure. through the use of Cap- though the use of Captain Marvel was once sort of in contention. Uh, DC used to publish its Captain Marvel comics at the same time as Marvel published theirs. DC has pretty much cheated the name now, right? Like it seems yeah. like it seems like they've more or less just given up. Uh, yeah, I, they don't even call him Captain Marvel anymore. No, they, they they call that guy now Shazam, and they leave with the uh, they leave Captain Marvel for whatever Marvel's going to do. So, yeah. I mean, as far as I know, it never went to court. But it was always one of these things where each company was sort of like, we're going to... Hedging it toward each other. Exactly. We're going to use this. Is it okay? We're using it. You know, but I I think... I I mean, when you come out with with seven volumes of Captain Marvel, I guess you're you're allowed to use it now. (laughs) Yes, I think... Because there was a while where we had a dry spell of Captain Marvel, and, uh, like, Marvel would put out, like, a one-shot every once in a while just to keep the... Just to keep it alive. Right. And uh, maybe just to... Remind DC that it's kind of it's it's their trademark now. Uh, we're actually going to be discussing a lot of that stuff uh, in uh, an upcoming episode of Comics History. That's right, a lot of that stuff. Um, <laughs> now <laughs> we've got a tale of two strangers. We have Doctor Strange and Doctor Hugo Strange. Now the first Doctor Strange is Hugo Strange. Mm-hmm. He first appeared in Detective Comics number thirty-six back in February nineteen forty by Bill Finger and Bob Kane. And this one may have actually been drawn by Bob Kane. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, now, he's an evil scientist who creates gigantic monster men to beguile Batman. And also Rob Banks. Sure. He died here, but would return in Detective Comics number 469, way, way, way ahead in May 1977, by Steve Englehart and Walt Simonson. And he had stung around, he's stuck around ever since. Uh, the better-known good doctor-turned-sorcerer Supreme Stephen Vincent Strange first manifested in Marvel Comics' Strange Tales number 110. It was July 1963 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. We actually covered that issue on the treadmill uh, somewhere in the archives. Yeah, I don't have the number. Uh, I, it only just occurred to me now, but we do have an episode on that that issue. We did. Now, a car accident leaves the doc with messed-up hands. And in seeking an unconventional cure, he winds up the guardian and protector of all magic in the world. He also gets a cool cape and a house in Manhattan's Greenwich Village as well. Yeah, and a movie which Hugo Strange has yet to get. True. And probably he's not going to get, but it, now... Uh, <laughs> not likely. <laughs> let's not forget about The Enchantress. Marvel's version of The Enchantress debuted in Journey into Mystery number 103, 1964, by Stanley and Jack Kirby. She's an Asgardian witch who acts as a foil for Scarlet Witch most of the time, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah, where where Asgard, Valkyrie will get involved, you know, but uh, yeah, she's got the magic powers. Uh, DC Comics Enchantress debuted in Strange Adventures number 187, April 1966, just a couple of years later, by Bob Haney and Howard Purcell. Uh, The switcheroo witcheroo, as she's advertised on the cover of that issue, is June Moon, who turns into a very powerful sorceress when she gets mad. So she's like the Hulk, but with card tricks. And, and you know, Chris, I like to picture the conversation in, in the DC Comics office. You know, Bob Haney said, I want to make a character called the Enchantress. And the editor said, well, Marvel has one already. And he just said, so? Yeah. You know, I, I want to make a character called the Enchantress. I, I don't know what the problem is. Yeah, that, it, it, it's, it's already done. It's, it's done. happening. It's, uh, I, I'm talking about a comic I've printed. I, I just forgot to mention it. <laughs> now, she would also join, like, the, the Suicide Squad for a while, oh, yes. and uh, she was part of JL Dark for a little she's bit. She's on there right now. Yeah, she's sort of a, you know, it's... Uh, 
she's not a recently she's been a more seen one because of the suicide squad but uh through through most of dc's history she kind of played a background role the background yeah, yeah. and i think both of these characters just made silver screen debuts right yeah you're very so right about that actually, i didn't even think about that yeah you're very right yep yeah. And I don't even see the things. Nope. <laughs> uh, we've got two Dooms, two Doctor Dooms. DC had the first Doctor Doom with an E at the end, so D-O-O-M-E. And he appeared in Leading Comics number three. This is June 1942 in a Seven Soldiers of Victory feature that was worked on by a whole load of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, what, this is like the old days where each character would get its own, own story and anthology. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of people. Now, Dr. Doom creates a time machine and uses it to bring back Nero, Attila, Bonaparte, Genghis Khan, and Alexander the Great to do battle with our heroes. The heroes win, spoiler alert, and Dr. Doom appears to die. He shows up one other time during the Golden Age. Uh, there was also there was then another Doctor Doom with no E who appeared in Detective Comics number 158. This is April 1950, credited to Bob Kane. This is his only appearance, the 1001 Trophies of Batman. Doctor Doom is a smuggler who finds himself trapped in the Batcave's trophy room. He tries to kill the dynamic duo with these trophies, but ends up offing himself. But of course, Marvel's better-known Victor Von Doom first impressed everybody in the Fantastic Four number 5, July 62, cover date by Lee and Kirby. He's the ruler of the fictional Eastern European country of Latveria, foiled to Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four, and wears full-body armor all the time. She's got Doom bots. You know the guy. Come on. If you don't know him, you haven't been uh, reading many comics. Uh, Guardian is one of my favorite characters, weirdly enough. Uh, James Jacob Jim Harper was the first Guardian, debuting in DC Comics, Star Spangled Comics, number 7, April 1942, by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. He's a police officer operating on the Lower East Side of New York who dresses in a blue and gold costume for vigilante work. And my favorite aspect is he's also the legal guardian of those lovable scamps, the Newsboy Legion. But somehow he doesn't need to house, clothe, or feed them. He's a legal guardian. <laughs> he just, all he has to do is tell them to stop stop causing mischief on the street. That's it. Don't do anything else. Uh, this role would later be assumed of the guardian, would later be assumed by clones, then Mal Duncan of the Teen Titans, then clones again. I'm not sure who, if anybody, is the guardian now. Yeah, there was that guardian part of uh, the Morrison Seven Soldiers of Victory. Uh, I was, was almost going to mention that. Yeah. Golden Guardian, right? But... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of... Well, and the Manhattan Guardian. The That's Manhattan what it was. Guardian. That's what it was. The yeah. Manhattan Guardian, right. But on the other side of the street, we've got James McDonald Hudson, a member of Marvel Comics Alpha Flight. He also debuted as the Guardian in X-Men number 109, February 1978, uh, created by John Byrne. Uh, Guardian was a fan character created by John Byrne years before he did any professional work in comics. He was originally called the Canadian Shield. <laughs> when, <laughs> why not? Now, when Byrne introduced the character in X-Men, this name was rejected uh, by publisher Marvel Comics because of their fictional organization, Shield, the one with the periods in between all the letters. Uh, now, Byrne then suggested Guardian, but this was also rejected due to the numerous extant Marvel characters under that name. So X-Men scripter Chris Claremont came up with Weapon Alpha and later Vindicator. Byrne disliked both of these names, probably because Chris Claremont came up with them. And when he was assigned the writing and penciling of the newly launched Alpha Flight title, he quickly had Vindicator change names to his earlier suggestion, Guardian. Yeah, I think that was a time that people weren't telling John Byrne what to do. At, at, no, I mean, how many millions of copies did that book sell? Yeah, really. So, yeah, uh, yeah he was allowed to use the uh, extant names. 
uh, Magneto. Now, we know him best as Max Magnus Eisenhart, who first appeared in the X-Men number one, September 1963, cover date by Lee and Kirby. He's leader of the Brotherhood of Mutants who believes in mutant superiority and, oh, you know, he has magnetic powers, of course. You could have figured hmm. that from his name. But just a few years later, <laughs> it's another one. <laughs> DC, <laughs> DC revealed an all-robotic Magneto in Aquaman number 36 in November 1967 cover again by Bob Haney and Nick Carty. He was a member <laughs> of the awesome threesome, three robots that messed around with Aquaman a few times. It had to be the same conversation. You know, right. you, Bob, you can't call him Magneto. And he's like, I'm, I'm calling him Magneto. I don't know what the deal. <laughs> you, know? you can't call him Magneto. Oh, well, uh, this is fine because he's Magneto. Magneto, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to talk about Cheetah. DC Comics Cheetah has been, well, a few people. But post-Crisis on Infinite Earth, she was Barbara Minerva. She debuted in Wonder Woman number 7. This is the August 1987 volume uh, by Alain Wien and George Perez. She was an ambitious British archaeologist uh, she, who fiddled with a holy idol that turned her into a cheetah woman, hey. complete with uh, furry spotted skin. Uh, Marvel's cheetah would first appear in Captain Marvel number 48. This is January 1977 by Jerry Conway and Al Milgram. He is Esteban Caracas, a mutant whose powers were activated by the Kree. It looks a little like a cat. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of like a little, you know, furry wolverine. Well, you know, a, a furrier wolverine. Yeah, like a, you know, fur, like a, the beast as wolverine. Oh, the yes. Beast, the beast kind of looks like wolverine, too, if you think about it. Because anyway. he had the pointy hair, yeah. Uh, the same barber. Essentially, yeah. Give me the V. I want the v, the, the front <laughs> V. Uh, now here's another little more complicated one. Sandman. It was first Wesley Dodds was the first Sandsman, debuting in Adventure Comics number 40. That was July 39, cover date by Gardner Fox and Burt Chrisman. This is the guy that wears a green suit and a gas mask, and his girlfriend, Dion, drives him to the crimes that he tries to prevent or solve or whatever. Then uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were tasked to revamp the Sandman's outfit in 1941, where they made it a gold and purple outfit, and then were brought back in for the Sandman number one in December 1974 to mm-hmm. revamp the character totally. And this time, he's Garrett Sanford, an actual ethereal figure that monitors dreams and beats up boogeymen. Later, it turns out that his kid is the Hector Hall of Infinity, Inc., which is important in the next iteration of this character. Neil Gaiman took this a step further in Sandman number one, January 1989, where the ethereal figure is Dream, not a man at all, but one, but one of the endless who have guided humanity forever. Uh, this character has tenacious attach, uh, has tenuous attachments to Wesley Dodd, Garrett Sanford, and even a special one to Hector Hall. But for all basic intents, uh, he's a brand new fella. Uh, Marvel's version of the Sandman was created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. He debuted in Amazing Spider-Man number four, September 1963. This is the Queen Queens-born criminal William Baker, aka Flint Marco. He comes into contact with ir- some irradiated sand which bonds to his body. Uh, now he can morph into different shapes made of sand. Uh, as to whether or not he can control dreams, I guess we would have to ask his girlfriend. Yeah, we don't know about that. <laughs> uh, this is the one, though, I got to say, of all the ones we've done, we've read in this list, is the one where I don't know which one is the more popular character. It's true. It's a comics true. fans, at least. I, I In the real world, I would actually say it would be uh, the, the Spider-Man Marvel. villain. Yeah, the Spider-Man yeah, the villain. Movie. But in, the, in comics, I don't know which you could say. Uh, they both loom large. It 
you know, since Neil Gaiman, that would be the version. Sure. That that would be the two versions in contention would be Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yeah, versus... then nobody's talking about that. <laughs> no one's worried about that uh, 70s, the 70s Sandman, the except, brute and glob, yeah. except for you and me. That's where pretty much <laughs> the only people beat that drum. But uh, yeah, that would be the only one I, I really would wonder that it's almost like equal Sandman are standing on non-sandy ground, or I'll come up with a better uh, thing later. Anyway, yes. <laughs> uh, and now just a few more Battle of the Sexes. You know, sometimes... Usually in comics, uh, you know, if you come up with a character, they you immediately come up with the girl version of that character, or vice versa. If it's a girl, you come sure. up with a man, because you don't want anyone else to take your idea. However, a couple of them have slipped through the cracks over the years, and uh, here, here are three. We've got Wonder Woman from DC Comics. She's the Princess Diana of Themyscira. She came burst onto the seat in All-Star Comics number 8. October 1941 by William Moulton Marston and Harry G. Peter, and we pretty much know her thing. She's got, like, Superman-level powers and an invisible jet and a, the lasso. And then there's also Wonder Man. Really couldn't be much more different, could he? No. <laughs> uh, Simon Williams, a.k.a. Wonder Man, showed up for the first time in The Avengers number 9, October 1964, by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Don Heck. He's the rich heir to munitions fortune and spends dough to become... Superpowered. Mm-hmm. And he was a—he started out as a villain, came a movie star, all that kind of crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, he, he was essentially like the evil Tony Stark at first, in a sense. It <laughs> seemed, like. yeah. yeah. Then we got a—we've uh, got people named Power. We've got Power Man, the guy known as Luke Cage. To his friends, first appeared in Luke Cage, Hero for Hire number one. This is June 1972 by Roy Thomas, Archie Goodwin, and John Romita Sr. It's a rough-and-tumble kid from Harlem. He undergoes an experimental procedure that makes him nigh indestructible. And he also says Sweet Christmas a lot. Sure. And I, I think there's been a recent, a new uh, Power Man. That, uh, that, isn't, that they... isn't Luke Cage? That isn't Luke Cage. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Wow. So I think they did a mini a Power Man and Iron Fist miniseries a few years ago with Danny Rand and this new Power Man. Um, but on the other side of the street, we got Power Girl. It's an alternate universe Supergirl, also known as Karen Starr. She debuted in All-Star Comics number 58. This is the January-February issue of 1976, created by Jerry Conway and Joe Orlando with uh, designs from Wally Wood. Uh, she has the same power set as Supergirl, and uh, uh, most notably for a lot of us, shows her cleavage through a booby window. That's right. That's how we know her. That's definitely how most of us know her best, you know? She, yes. she essentially was like the Earth 2 stand-in for Supergirl when they needed those characters, yes. and then when Crisis happened, they tried to make that work with her Made doing her all of it. And and it didn't, <laughs> it was quite, not a quite one-to-one comparison, but that, that was that. Uh, and finally, Ultraman. This is Superman's evil counterpart from Earth-3 in DC Comics. First appeared in Justice League of America number 29, August 64, cover date, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. His particulars have changed a little over the years. Like, like you know, in the most recent one, he was sniffing kryptonite. Yeah. Uh, there are other ones yeah. where he's just sort of like a bank robber, you know. Uh, but the the constant he's the bad guy, Superman. That's the that's the essential thing. That's it, yeah. And uh, Ultra Girl, Cree to teenager Susanna, known on Earth as Susie, first appeared in Ultra Girl number one, November nineteen ninety six, by Barbara Kiesel and Leonard Kirk. Raised as a normal Californian teenager, she discovers her Cree heritage when attacked during her first modeling audition, which. 
probably put her off the career path. I would. I think. would imagine. Uh, yeah, she was part of that uh, Ultraverse thing, right? When Marvel was trying to mingle the universes before lawyers got involved, I guess. Yeah, uh, but but I, I do believe that she is now like part of Marvel proper. But I don't know if you ever see her. Who knows? They. Yeah, I think she was part of that uh, that Avengers initiative where they were making Avengers for every state following Civil War. I think she was on <laughs> one of those. Da- yeah. I mean, yeah, who, yeah. who couldn't be on that? You know? I think you and I are on a yeah, couple of those, we got, too. We got drafted. Uh, and I, <laughs> I got to say, of all these three that we mentioned, I probably the, the one that would be least litigious has to be Power Man, Power Girl. Because in one case, you have a super strong black guy, and the other yeah. one, you got a blonde girl that flies. So... You know, it's the power of the name. The <laughs> you're not going to confuse them. Exactly. We're not going to think that they're from the same company. But uh, I'm sure we've missed a few here, or maybe we left a few out that uh, people want to hear about. And if that's the case, or you want to talk about Ghost Rider, you want to talk about Howard Mackey or Mark Texera, or anything well, you if like. You know, if you know who Writer X was. If you could tell us who Writer X was, <laughs> uh, you write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. Did you know we have a Tumblr? I, I believe we do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find that if you're of that uh, if you're a fan of Tumblr, you can find us at cosmic That's right. And uh, we're on Twitter at cosmic t-mail. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings about uh, more recent comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com and find Chris's uh, writings on DC Comics on his personal blog, Chris'sInfiniteEarth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week. And uh, it's always very insightful stuff, full of uh, images grabbed from the comic as well as ads and a nice... Uh, it's I don't know what I like better, whether I like your breakdown during the comic or your thoughts <laughs> after. I think... They they are kind of uh, two things you got to read together, but yes, uh, yeah, they refer to one another. <laughs> but it, but it's it's different every day. You just did the uh, new Fifty Two Action Comics number two. I did. But you've also done Action Comics going back to the seventies, and, and I think to you the fifties, even you know, back to the fifties, even. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of what you that's been your mission lately. Anyone listening to this podcast regularly knows that we keep talking about uh, Chris. Winding down a hundred issues of Action Comics, randomly selected. Yes, we're uh, up to number eighty-seven out of a hundred, so we're 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 zooming in. And that action that Action Comics of thousand is out in three weeks, right? So yep, get ready for more of that, folks. <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now we have the uh, show site at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where we put our show notes, uh, links to some good stuff, some images. Um, every week we're going to try to collect some of our older episodes into groups so it makes it a little bit easier to follow, easier to find. Yeah. Um, this past week we did uh, the box set for the uh, for our discussion on the Underground Comics. So all four episodes are right there in one post. It's easier to find than trying to track them down in the Podbean archives. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> make it a little bit easier. The Podbean archives we know are very difficult, but what are you going to do? They can be, indeed. Uh, we're also on YouTube. If you search YouTube for Weird Comics History as one word... You'll find our stuff. Eventually, we'll get a we'll get a URL right after we get enough uh, up there. If, after we get like a, a couple thousand subscribers, so I'm saying any day now. Any, any day, day, any moment now. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're any any second. So, uh, but yeah, if you like to listen to it that way, as I do at work, I listen to YouTube's while I'm working in other windows all the time. So sure. that would be very useful for me. 
Uh, we want to thank Wayne Booth again for the comic book suggestion. He didn't give Certainly. me uh, a ton of information, except that it's just a comic that stuck with him since he was a kid. And uh, I could see that. You know, it's it's sort of dark, a lot of weird imagery. I could see it sort of like hanging around there in your brain. Sure. But, uh, yeah, so thanks a lot for that. And we have other suggestions from Wayne coming up in the future. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do us. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill vengefully. See ya. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. That's my name, too. And whenever we go out, the people always shout, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Fra la 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 la. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. That's my name, too. And whenever we go out, Shout